Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always is my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. How are you doing today? And we have a special guest for the first segment of this. It's our reviews editor, Mike Williams. Hello, hello, folks. How's everyone doing today? And we got a lot to cover in this episode. It is early, late January, but it feels like there's a lot happening in the RPG space. And one of the problems with running a podcast that only comes out once a week is that sometimes just everything seems to happen at once. But Mike, uh, I got Mike on the show because he is going to talk to us about Temtem and Dragon Ball Z Kakarot, both of which he has been covering. Uh, Temtem is particularly interesting because it's been uh, kind of growing out, I would say. So we're going to get to that stuff in a little bit before. uh, And then we're also going to be doing a mailbag this week, Nadia. Yes, I am very excited about that. Uh, You've all been sending some fantastic letters and comments lately. I always like to try and do a mailbag at least once a month. And that is what I'm now is the time of month to do it. So... We are going to be doing that a little bit later. But first, Axe of Blood God is a U.S. Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever. Podcasts are sold. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review. We really appreciate it. You can follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. And currently, Mike is on Twitter under Into Discourse. Oh, I'm actually back. You're back? I'm back. Oh, yeah, you're I'm out of Twitter jail. On, on, on <laughs> at, at Automatic Zen again. Yay! Hooray! Yay. Well, crap. Well, now we have to record, re-record the ending of this podcast. <laughs> we already recorded the mailbag segment. We can tell everyone just ignore that. Just ignore that part. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, now you see how the magic is made, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, you see how the sausage is made. More like it. <laughs> anyway, so yeah. Uh, hooray, you're back. Automatic Zen. Okay. Um, and also, we have a newsletter that comes out every single Wednesday. Nadia, what is the newsletter about this week? Well, basically, uh, since you've all probably noticed, I sound like I have like uh, been smoking cigarettes every day for 20 years. Uh, I've had the flu. I'm still getting over it. And I was really sick. And I didn't... You know how when you're really too sick to even concentrate on games and you just want to play something brainless that you love? And for me, that was Final Fantasy IV, a complete collection on A lot of people uh, would not PS call Vita. Final Fantasy IV brainless. To me, I've played it so many damn times that I can play it in my sleep. That's the reason why. Uh, it, but... <laughs> You know, I kind of vouched for it as well, because um, if you do want a very easygoing RPG, it's a great one. It's very straightforward. Uh, you're not exactly going to break your brain trying to understand the story. Uh, it has some pretty good dungeon designs, some good character designs. Uh, Complete Collection in particular has really nice graphics, uh, especially the monster designs. So I was just kind of going over the, the merits of the game and just the merits of playing a game that you you love and are familiar with when you're just not feeling up to doing much else. I think the worst thing is when you're so sick that you can't even play games because yeah. staring at a screen is going hurts too much and you can't focus. And so you're lying there both simultaneously feeling awful and also feeling very bored. Yes, like uh, w- what I did for that was podcast actually. Podcast mm. like Acts of the Blood God. Nah, good. Plug. I love that podcast. But uh yeah, that's pretty much what I do. Podcasts and audiobooks cuz I also I thought i might have had the flu but it was just a bad cold over Ew. the weekend and it was podcasts and audiobooks because i couldn't like really get up but i had to because i still had to play kakara <laughs> so you had to play it while sick it's weird we don't have anybody nobody everybody works from home nobody is in an office together so it's a lot harder to smell spread germs and yet three people got sick at once on our team it was crazy 
it's a vicious, it's a really bad cold slash flu season this year. Yeah, uh, it just, it seems to be hitting especially hard right now because there were multiple people in England as well who are Oof. getting knocked out. So tough time. Stay healthy, everybody. The blood Wash God demands hands. it. <laughs> <laughs> the blood God needs healthy sacrifice. Uh, so a quick news item. Uh, Kingdom Hearts 3 DLC is out. Uh, we don't have a formal review of it on this podcast, but Katie's been doing a really good job of covering it. She talks about the very weird ending that happens, which ties into Final Fantasy th- versus 13. I would encourage you to go read her article to find out why. Yeah, that was really weird. It's so weird that they would dredge v- versus 13 of all things up. Yeah, I guess Nomura is really nostalgic. I guess. Uh and also, she talks about how it has a really good photo mode. It does. I saw her, like, posting stuff on Twitter of, like, you know, like, Sora having ice cream with the bad guys and stuff like that. I love the idea of being able to... So, sea salt ice cream is kind of a thing in Kingdom Hearts, right? And you can... It is. You can give sea salt ice cream to Xehanort, the, the big bad villain. That's such a weird name for a bad guy. Uh, yeah, Isn't it, it is. supposed to be something, like, backwards or something like that? I oh, feel for like... God's sake, it's, it must be. Yeah, because all all of the the Organization 13 members are like, they have real names, and then it's like X, and then the real name all mixed up. Uh, Organization 13 is so stupid. It really is. But you can tell that it's Square uh, trying to put in as much as they can of their own stuff so that they aren't beholden to Disney licensing restrictions. I actually noticed that, yeah. Yeah, it does feel like when I was looking at the stuff Katie was going over, it was kind of like... They did Kingdom Hearts 3, and then Square looked at it, and then they went back to him and was like, where's all of our stuff? <laughs> and this was the, the answer, like, fine, fine. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Mike, you have been playing an RPG that uh, honestly has not been doing super well. Like, people were kind of like, eh, ultimately. Uh, you gave it a 3 out of 5, but I do think that the Blood God demands that we talk about it, so... Dragon Ball fight, uh, Dragon Ball Z Kakarot. Uh, Kakarot. Why? Why didn't it quite live up to the expectations? Uh, it's just it's a really messy game. So it it's an RPG. It's an action RPG. But the RPG side of it is kind of real muddy. There's a whole bunch of systems. Uh, like there's cooking and fishing, and there's a community board which gives you passive bonuses. And there's a general, uh, like, leveling system and random battles. But none of it feels particularly meaningful. So, like, the, the fighting, the basic combat of it does a good job of bringing across Dragon Ball Z's fights. And CyberConnect 2 is really good at bringing across Dragon Ball Z's biggest moments. But the RPG side of it... Like, most of the random battles you can get experience, but it's not enough to matter. You'll get a lot more from side missions and story missions, at which point it's almost not even really an RPG. They just put you at the level that you need to be at to do the story content. So, it, it like, I feel like they, they started with a game like Dragon Ball Xenoverse and Xenoverse 2, which are more action games and then they were like ah but this should be an rpg and they didn't really commit here's my problem with bandai namco games and cyber connect definitely 
feeds into this because I've seen this kind of thing come out of Bandai Namco a billion times. They make these anime games that look really handsome in the mm-hmm. screenshots and still screenshots yeah. and that kind of thing. And in YouTube trailers, they often take uh, popular plot points from the actual series as they do in Kakarot. Uh, they do it in Gundam as well. And uh, they're doing it now with Captain Tsubasa. But everything that's underpinning this stuff uh, is usually either pretty shallow or like a little bit janky. And so the only appeal, like the appeal is really superficial. Like it's kind of pretty. It hits on a lot of like the stuff that you're nostalgic about, but it's empty calories in, ter- in terms of gameplay. That's yeah, bad. yeah. There, there's just a feeling that they they started like what type of game we want to make, and then they didn't necessarily think how to get there. 100. percent Like the RPG seems to be an afterthought to the rest of the game, which is more telling the story of Dragon Ball Z again in game form. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that Dragon Ball Z is, I mean, because of what they're trying to accomplish, right? They're hitting at fans of the series. They are trying to hit at the widest possible base of people. And they don't want to do it for a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. And and I mean, I, I compared this... Uh, to other games that CyberConnect 2 has worked on, uh, the Naruto Ultimate Ninja series, uh, of which there were, I think, eight, eight or nine total, and they got better with time. But this is definitely like the first, like, they'll throw it out there, see how it does. I, I think Dragon Ball fans will probably be mostly happy with it, but then maybe the Kakarot 2 will sort of fix the RPG side of it or improve, uh, you know, add some more customization or maybe even uh, add some RPG choice and consequence style gameplay in there. But this feels just like a, let's get it out there, let's see how it goes, and then we'll work from there. Well, the unfortunate thing is they don't really even get the fan service right, uh, right? Because it, I mean, they really gloss over some of the major high points of the series. They cover them. The problem is that, like, with the way the pacing works, a lot of, like, major memorable moments will sometimes come in quick succession, whereas, like, in the show, maybe they happened over the course of ten episodes. In the game, they'll happen over the course of, like, five to ten minutes. Wow, so, so it's sometimes, <laughs> like, they're they're trying to hit everything, but with the, the amount of time that they have, because they're trying to fit, like uh 300 some odd episodes into like 40 hours of gameplay they the the pacing feels off at times so like the equivalent would be i'm going to use bleach as a reference cuz that's one i've actually watched uh there the second arc of bleach has uh ichigo getting into soul society for the first time and over the course of like what was it a ridiculous like 50 episodes or something he fights various captains he gets progressively more powerful he unlocks his bankai move and all of that stuff and that would be like if they compressed 50 episodes into one boss battle and a training sequence and now you're like okay well that that segment is done (laughs) yeah like so that whole soul society arc would probably be i'd say like 10 hours 
but uh, some of the moments in there would be glossed over in a cutscene. Some of them would come in quick succession, so you wouldn't really feel the impact as you did in the show. Uh, and I mean, part of that, I don't know if they could fix, but it still feels odd experiencing the story in that way. The thing that kind of baffles me a little bit is I think that Bandai Namco should be investing a lot more heavily in these pro in these popular series. Uh, I think Dragon Ball Fighter Z really opened my eyes to how big a truly great Dragon Ball game can be. The oops all Goku's thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then similarly like with Captain Tsubasa, I mean nobody in North America knows about it, but in Latin America and Europe, if that game were as okay, it's a lot to ask for a game to be as good as FIFA, but if it were a lot more polished and had a lot more to the gameplay and wasn't just a kind of a greatest hits of the the series, is which is what they seem to be aiming for, I think that there are so many people who are A, really nostalgic for Tsubasa and B, desperate for a FIFA competitor that they would wholeheartedly embrace this game. I would. <laughs> yeah, and and like there's games like so uh My Hero's One Justice, which is the My Hero Academia fighting game, is another one of those things where it's like it's fine. It's a fine game, but it could be so much better. It doesn't feel like they're they're committing as strongly as they could to finding the right developer to make the right game for that property as opposed to oh we know CyberConnect 2 or another developer let's just have them do it and put it out there and then improve on it over time and they're perfectly happy to stick with a particular formula that just works over and over again they're like well this will sell X amount of copies and so let's just accomplish this as long as it looks kind of polished fine whatever yeah, pretty much, and uh, it's a shame. Uh, it's it's sort of the uh, opposite of what I want from uh, EA. I want more Star Wars games from EA, and I'm never getting them because uh, they're really slow to get there. Uh, ben, uh, Nam- Bandai Namco <laughs> is in the opposite direction hmm. in that it's like, here's a game, and here's a game, and here's another <laughs> game, and it's it's... Uh, like, My Heroes 1 Justice, uh, the first game was in 2018, the second is 2020. So, like, they're moving pretty quickly on the first game, then the sequel, and however many sequels they need to, to keep it going. Yeah, well, I mean, if you have to, if you put it into context, Bandai Camp Namco's game studios, for the most part, the anime licensed arm, I mean, they are kind of a portion of the toy business, right? And so much of what they do exists to push the toys and the anime. So it doesn't really matter if the games themselves are good or not. It's true. It's true. But maybe something that's a little bit better is Temtem. Yes, Temtem is is enjoyable. I'm having a lot of fun with it. Yeah, it seems Um, to be blowing up a little bit. Uh, It's definitely rising up the charts at the moment. Yeah, and I think that's, that's partially because of the platform it's on like it's on pc now and they've promised to have switch xbox one and uh ps4 versions coming but also i I think the reception to pokemon sword and shield earned or not 
has sort of sent some people searching for the next thing, the competitor. And for all how much I enjoy Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth, that ain't it. <laughs> now, <laughs> thank you for acknowledging this, Mike. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's not the, the great... Uh, Cyber Sleuth is still a good RPG, goddammit. But uh, it's not the sort of game that's going to stand up to Pokemon and provide that kind of experience to trainers. Whereas this is... Temtem feels like almost that Stardew Valley-ish, uh, a bunch of uh, a fan or a bunch of fans get together and being like, we feel maybe the series has faltered a little bit. Why don't we try to see if we can hit the core of that experience on our own? And I think they've done a pretty good job. of. Can you walk people through it, like who haven't played it? Uh, so... Tim Tim, for the most part, and I, in an article that just went up, uh, it will have been Friday for people listening to this. At the core of it, it feels a lot like those early Pokemon games. So red, blue, gold, silver. And uh, if I had to guess the game that they aimed more directly for, it would be Pokemon Ruby and Sapphire. So it's that same, you wake up uh, and you're heading out on your journey and you have various towns connected by mostly straightforward routes with full of trainers and tall grass to find Tim Tim in. And you catch Tim Tim by weakening them and then throwing your Tim card at them. And a lot of it is that old Pokemon style of play with the serial numbers filed off. <laughs> I love that expression <laughs> with the serial numbers filed off. It's one of my favorites. Um, and I mean, th that's not to say that they haven't come up with some decent ideas, such as uh, they have a stamina system in there so that you can't keep spamming your biggest attacks. And in fact, if you do and you run out of stamina, which is, you know, uh, like their, their Pokemon's MP, they actually can hurt themselves. Uh, so you kind of have to cycle in and out. And there's also a synergy system. So it's 2v2 battles. Uh, if you have two Pokemon that share synergies, certain moves will be stronger or have higher priority. So there, there's definitely at least some thought to how can we sort of improve on some of these elements. But at its core, it is definitely that older style of Pokemon done with more modern technology by a different studio. So one of the things that I feel like gets glossed over a lot with Pokemon is that it's an incredibly deep game, especially once you get to the end game. Do you feel like Temtem matches that? I do think so. Because um, I think that gets lost a lot in these Me Too Pokemon games. Like, if you look at a game like Yokai Watch, it is, it's cute, it has great presentation, but the reason it hasn't really stuck is because it's just not that deep. Yeah, it's quite shallow. Yeah, so... so uh, and the reason I say Pokemon uh, Ruby and Sapphire is not just the two, two, two v two battles, but that's also when they added uh, the more extensive breeding, like they had breeding for the first time. That seems to be the strong part of in game. Uh, a lot of farming Pokemon for the uh, sorry, farming Tim Tim for their <laughs> specific uh, effort values, and I think signature values are what they call them in Tim Tim, but they are pretty much the same as uh, sort of those, the, the training values and 
Like, like that's how close they are, that the terminology right. is like blending together in my mind. And really what you're trying to do is you're out there farming for the best of a specific style of Tim Tim and then breeding those together to build uh, a really strongly synergistic team. Uh, and they do have some uh, and even improvements in breeding, such as items that will allow you to focus past specific stats onto the child Tim Tim. So it's a little bit less random in terms of breeding than it was in Pokemon itself. Do you think that Tim Tim will have staying power? I think it will uh, because it's good enough. Uh, and part of the article that when we're recording this just went up is about the sort of this idea that a lot of people are keeping kudos on Tim Tim and I think they're deserved because it is good enough and it is well done and is well put together and considered. If you put p the Pokemon name on this game, people would be very unhappy with it. There is that, like you're mentioning, oh, uh, like I, I edited the article that you put up, Mike, and certain things that you mentioned, it's like people say, oh yeah, why doesn't Pokemon have this kind of stamina system? Because, you know, the um, competitive scene would absolutely freak out, and rightfully so, because that is a major change. And that is one thing you brought up in your article, is that Pokemon can't change as easily as Temtem can. Uh, even with the dex cut, you're still looking at, like, you know, 150 Temtem versus, uh, God, soon it's going to be, like, 600 Pokemon. Right, and even just cutting... Uh, I forget how much the, the Pokedex cut was. Even cutting like a third or half the Pokemon like was a firestorm. Exactly. And Pokemon will never be able to cut back or, or go back to basics and tear down the Pokemon franchise and start again. It never will be. There will always have some sort of institutional cruft that they have to carry forward from game to game. And that that yeah, they like, tried to hit the soft reboot switch. It was called Pokemon Let's Go. Right. Nobody cared about it. And and Pokemon, uh, I compare Tim Tim directly to Let's Go because it feels very similar uh, in that it's what if we start from the, the, the foundational level, but with modern technology. And I don't think people particularly enjoyed Let's Go. I don't have that, that sort of read on the community. There's things that they want carried from game to game that prevent Game Freak from really getting down to brass tacks and revamping Pokemon. Yeah, uh, Pokemon Let's Go's really came and went in a way that a Pokemon game just normally doesn't. It felt like this, I, we've said this many times on the podcast, it felt like the stand-in for how it used to be a game that was very accessible to all ages. Now... Uh, Pokemon Sword and Shield is the hardcore version and Pokemon Let's Go is the beginner version but it doesn't have enough hooks into the mainline series even though they're introducing Pokemon Home so people don't care. But uh, In terms of Temtem, my main read on it is that it's primitive now but so was Warframe when it first started and it's coming out at the perfect time which is the beginning of a new generation. So I could see if it makes its way to PS5 and Xbox Series X uh, really early on, I could totally see it becoming a thing, especially if it's continued to be updated over a long period of time. 
And those are the two strong benefits of it. One, that it's multi-platform, whereas Pokemon will always be Switch only. And two, it's an MMO technically, and they've sort of built the world, uh, the, 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 I, the archipelago are a bunch of floating islands that are connected by airship. So they've built the world so they can keep expanding it. Like they can keep just throwing on another island or adding more Tim Tim or adding more costumes. Uh, it's very much, it's currently in early access, so it's work in progress. So there's certain things in there that you can like go to the shop that's supposed to have it. Like there's supposed to be housing customization uh, in addition to player customization, but the housing system isn't currently in the game. But since it's an MMO, it's a game that can consistently grow, and I don't think that they are working towards like a sequel or anything like that. Whereas I think Pokemon is sort of fixed again in the idea of doing sequels or generations or, or the the generational upgrade. I agree. Well, I'm curious to see how that changes uh, with the DLC now. Yeah, that'll be real interesting. But I, but even then, it's like it's Game Freak and Nintendo, and I'm just their their DLC and ongoing support has been better than it has been in the past, but not in the same way that you would see some other games. Like like moving on to the, the big thing now is DLC yeah. and season passes and multiple seasons. Like Pokemon could definitely fit in that style i just don't see that happen okay mike thanks for coming on to share your thoughts on kakarat and uh temtem i think temtem is particularly interesting and i think that i mean people are really starting it's really starting to catch on in a way that i find very interesting and i hope it ends up being one of the surprise hits of the year because lord knows we need it I'm actually curious to see where it goes because in my mobile days, I saw so many Pokemon likes that looked like it was going to take off and then it just kind of died. But this could be different, especially if it comes to, to you know, consoles, because that was one major thing about those Pokemon likes in the old days. Very few of them came to consoles. I think that that's a part of it. And then also there's just a real hunger for a more modern take on Pokemon that also doesn't lose the appeal of Pokemon. And maybe Temtem is the closest we've come yet. Yep. Yeah, we'll see. All right, Mike, thanks so much, and we're going to move on to the mailbag. Okay, Nadia, it's that time of the month. It is time to talk to our readers and see what they want to know about the wonderful world of RPGs. And I've been saving up some of my favorite letters. I also solicited people on Twitter. That sounds really wrong, but I did it <laughs> to get more questions and I got a nice array. So why don't we get right to it, shall we? So number one, it's it's letter time, according to the show notes. Okay, this one is from Carl Weseth. He says, I was listening to the excellent 2020 preview episode. I was thinking about my own RPG expectations for the coming year. I don't know if I'm particularly excited about playing any of the games you covered, though I'm sure I'll have a grand old time. What I'm excited about, though, is whether any of them are going to contain some sort of innovation or fresh perspective that might shake up their respective subgenres or maybe even the RPG as a whole, a la what Disco Elysium did last year. I'm especially hoping that something like that might happen in the JRPG space, since I feel like we haven't had any truly seismic events there since, heck, I don't know, 
Since I have two actual experts on hand, I could just ask you, when was the last time we saw a groundbreaking JRPG? Final Fantasy XII, maybe? Oh, Final Fantasy XII is actually a very interesting answer. Um, Because I remember a lot of people were were very upset with the way it played, saying it was too much like Final Fantasy XI. That is to say, too much like an MMORPG. I would say the last really innovative JRPG I played was was Undertale. Um, because it was not only did it, did it play with your expectations of what a JRPG is at the sa- as, at the same time as it like kind of paid homage to those to those old cliches, uh, but the battle system was, was very unique. Um, the way that the game plays around with like tropes like save files and, and like you know makes you think, oh my god, your game has been erased. Oh my god, Flowey has crashed your computer. Uh, that sort of thing just kind of blew me away a little bit. I have not played a game that made me feel so uneasy uh, since Undertale. It was weirdly, it was simultaneously cute, and yet there was an air of menace almost from the beginning. You're like, what? what's Goat Mom's deal? What, what's with these monsters? What's going on? Yeah, and it's like you, you like fall down a big hole and there's a, a flower there who's like, hi, I'm your friend, and they try to kill you. Yeah, yeah, it looks so friendly, and then it's like, I will destroy you, and you're like, oh my god. Ah. And then like, the thing about Undertale is that it's meant to be played several times over, of course. And so the second time you play through and you avoid Flowey's attack when he's, like, trying to, like, you know, give you quote-unquote love pellets, uh, he'll um, he'll kind of, like, tell you off the first time you, you dodge him. But when you dodge him repeatedly, he will basically, like, turn into a demon and, like, snarl at you and like say oh you just wait till you see what's coming and so even when you after you play the first time and you think you've seen all the surprises uh there's plenty more to go i think the most interesting rpgs play with the conventions in a lot of ways that's why disco elysium stood out because it was really playing with the concepts of how you do dialogue choices yes and undertale was really playing around with consequence the problem with asking for big-time innovation from JRPGs is that there are only a few really big studios that are left in the space, and they are, by and large, going to be playing it quite safe because they want to hit the maximum uh, number of audiences. A game like Final Fantasy XV, quote-unquote, innovated by being more of a blockbuster, set-piece-driven game, right? Yeah. A game like uh, Persona 5 is kind of following the template that was established back in persona 3 with the day-to-day kind of thing like it expands on it but it's not going to like really push the boundaries and then so many of the others are really built on nostalgia a game yeah. like dragon quest 11 that is a nostalgia game octopath that is traveler definitely a nostalgia game uh but it kind of has to be because look at what happened when square enix like innovated with uh, dragon quest 9 there was almost a rebellion <laughs> it, it it wound up being really successful in the end but that was probably like a really that's probably a big pain in the butt for them with to have that backlash there are a few things you do not mess with in Japan. One of them is Dragon Quest. <laughs> I can only imagine. Yeah, and yes, you, you are totally right. Dragon Quest plays it safe, and, and it does that very well. It plays it, it plays safe very well. But um, yeah, you don't mess with Dragon Quest. I think the thing is, is that Dragon Quest is an institution in Japan. Mm-hmm. It's the thing that your parents played, and maybe even their parents played. And everybody has memories. People see it as almost like a national symbol, things like the slime. So... To mess around with that formula, you just don't do it. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, uh, so I don't really blame JRPGs for not innovating so much. I mean, you do get certain like stabs at innovation. Uh, Final Fantasy 15 was a good example because I think that um, 
a lot of people were really happy with the idea of a JRPG road trip. Whereas, like, you're not messing with the whole convention of having a uh, a band of friends on a long journey to somewhere, but you're doing something different with it. You're not just kind of getting into a wagon. You're getting into a cool car and driving down a road instead of, like, a dirt path or whatever. And I, I think little innovations like that, maybe you're still playing it safe, but they make people... Um, they still make people happy without feeling threatened. I think the tr- last truly seismic shift in the JRPG space was probably actually Pokemon. Pokemon, on the face of it, is kind of just Dragon Quest, right? But yeah. it invented, or it more or less gave us the monster-catching, it popularized it at least, the monster-catching genre. But more importantly, I would kind of argue that it was one of the first really strong instances of a quote-unquote service game where you it was built around communication and community uh subsequent games would have updates and like special things that you could download it was i mean i don't think we give pokemon enough credit for how different it was and how different it continued to be it was we didn't even really understand what it was doing and how far ahead of the curve it was in 1996. Yeah, you're right. Um, actually, before that, just barely before that, uh, I would say um, Super Mario RPG because that was the first real instance that I can remember of seeing action within a menu-based RPG. Uh, the idea of being able to physically attack your opponents instead of just strictly leaving it to a menu, that was very innovative for its time. Okay, Next question. This one is from David Giza. Hey, Kat. Question for the Axe of the Blood God mail call. What are some of yours and Nadia's favorite short RPGs, like 20 or so hours? Something that you could get done in less than a month after work. I've played a bunch of KOTOR and KOTOR 2 just because they're so manageable. Nadia, and we already brought up Undertale. (laughs) (laughs) Undertale is indeed a very big one because you're looking at like, uh, gosh, like five to ten hours depending on what you do and where you go but maximum 10 hours. Yeah, so that's a big one. I think that RPGs that get beyond 50 hours start to become a burden for me these days. Yeah, and you're playing Dragon Quest Eleven, so have fun with that. Yeah, I already <laughs> mentioned that it feels a little bit like an epic novel, right? Right, right. But, like, uh, I'm enjoying it. I, I think I got to one of the big twists just now, actually. You did, I saw your Twitter. Yeah, and I was like... <laughs> I, like as twists go I, I was kind of like uh, okay <laughs> it's been done cool but uh, but it also made up for it by Silvando's smile time happy hour or whatever the funny thing about like I will praise Dragon Quest uh, 11s to the stars for what it did and what it added uh, but you will soon see that the you're kind of doing the interludes right now which were added um, in the Switch version of the game and I feel like the twist has a lot more impact when it gets when it picks up the story, like, after that point, um, as, as again, as you'll see, because it was actually a very, a very, it, it takes a very, very dark turn after that, but you won't know it until after you're done with, like, all the, um, all the side quests. The Witcher 3 is another game that I've just been noodling at for years at this point, <laughs> and I love it, but it's like that novel that I just keep picking up periodically to get back into, I still haven't quite finished the first expansion, and there's a whole nother expansion beyond that, you know, and it's just, on the one hand, it can be nice to go back to these experiences, but on the other, it's like, okay, like, what was I doing? How do I play this game? (laughs) Who are these characters? 
<laughs> yeah, that's that's actually a, a big problem I find with modern RPGs uh, that we didn't have to deal with so much in the past. Like once you abandon a game for a while for whatever reason and you go back to it, you have to re-remember all those intricate um, controls. And that can be trickier than you think. Like, I remember going back to Trails of Cold Steel 3 after, like, playing Trails of Cold Steel 1. And it had been a long time between the games. And I'm like, how does this battle system work again? This feels so alien and foreign to me. It You get warmed up again, but it's still... It's not a matter of just, oh, fight, weapon, you know, item, magic. It's... There's a lot more to, to, to battle systems these days. And it takes a while to get into if you've been away for a while. I picked up an old save of Darkest Dungeon and immediately got multiple of my best characters killed. There you go. Like, I know if I pick up Slay the Spire again, I'm going to get stumped. Oh, yeah, because you're going, oh, which of these cards are good again? The thing is that Slay the Spire is a loop, so you can play it all in one sitting and it's fine. That's true. Yeah, as opposed to Darkest Dungeon where you can put dozens of hours into it and still only be in the second tier. And then if you start losing characters, it's so hard to recover. Uh, that sounds like a pain in the ass. <laughs> They've added multiple systems to lessen the impact of that. But uh-huh. when it happens, it's still like, no, because you have to invest so much time and so much money oh, in these yeah. characters. That is absolutely brutal when they die. Uh, so to get back to the question at hand, I think uh, Chrono Trigger is your example of a yes. super brisk RPG that just feels really tight from beginning to end. You're going to knock it out and fewer than 20 hours and yet you're going to feel like you have this incredibly rich and wonderful experience yeah uh one thing i actually really like about chrono trigger is that um there's always uh, uh, an end game regardless how long you want to play the game for so uh once you do new game plus you can literally go after lavos like from the millennial fair and you'll still get like you'll actually get one of the best endings in the game for doing that uh, whereas, of course, if you want to play the full mainline quest and, of course, all the, the side quests, and there are many, uh, that will still take you about maybe about 25 hours and you get like a really nice, you know, complete story ending for that. Or if you want to you, stop, oh, I'm going to stop uh, right, as, uh, right before f- uh, we take on Magus and you get this really cool cutscene slash ending where Frog goes up against Magus. And so it really rewards you for thinking differently about where you want to end the game. I like RPGs that if you critical path it, it can be done in like 20 hours. But Mm -hmm. if you decide to explore the world around you, you can start finding these stories, uh, these side quests that start connecting into one another and becoming kind of these really interesting world building arcs. Yeah, I agree. Those are always really cool. I think too many RPGs spend a lot of time on world building in the main quest. And it's like, fine, maybe put that in the supplementary material, i.e. the side quests. Yeah, I find that it's a lot more rewarding to kind of discover the world when you're wandering, you know, literally exploring off the beaten path and learning in that regard. One of the things about Witcher 3 that, okay, so so much of it is actually optional. Like, you can you can ignore some of the most major quests in the entire game. <laughs> nice. But if you ignore those super major quests, there are consequences because they will just continue without you. <laughs> And then this person who needed help from werewolves is probably dead. Yeah, more or less. I actually had a quest where it was like, the Witcher went off, uh, promised to help this dying person, and then went off and never returned. (laughs) They died. (laughs) Well, they did what they promised. They said they were going to die, and they died. It's like that meme, guess I'll die. The Witcher's not here. I mean, it makes sense because the idea is 
either you as a witcher choose to meddle in international politics or you don't. And if you choose not to, then things will continue without you. But there's a bit of a guilt factor because things almost always turn out poorly. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. (laughs) That's actually... It's funny, we're talking about Undertale again for a second. There is an ending you can get where it's one of the grimmest endings in the game. Basically, you kill everyone except for that last person you need to kill to get the genocide ending. And uh, everyone just kind of, well, Sans calls you uh, on your phone, literally, and tells you, like, everyone's just basically waiting to die in the cold and the dark because you've left them all there. And uh, he says, like, you know, hey, you know, usually I like to take it easy, but this is what happens when people like me take it easy. So he blames himself for it. Yeah, it was it was really grim. I don't want to tie it too heavily into what's going on in 2020 and the world in general, but I think that what you're seeing right now is what happens when good people don't do anything. Yeah, pretty much. I always thought it was trite to say, like, you know, the only thing needed for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing, which, of course, was made f- uh, famous by Castlevania, even though it doesn't come from that. Uh, you know, I'm like, oh, that's trite, but in a way it's true. Yeah, so... I think what it's saying is, you do have the power. You're not helpless. Everybody in our generation feels completely helpless. I don't know how this ties into short RPGs, but... (laughs) You can make the choice to play a short RPG and go out there and and do activism for the rest of the time. Yeah, take your Switch with you to the wherever, the uh, someplace where you can do activist things and also enjoy your favorite RPGs. It'll probably keep you company at night in your tent. There you go. Perfect. Until the battery <laughs> runs out, then you have a problem. But don't don't call us. We don't. We can't help you. Mark Evans asks, are there any RPGs you think are otherwise good or decent, but end up completely ruined by design or story choice? I, I know I spent like, I don't know if it was last episode of the episode before, talking about Breath of Fire 2, but that's a big one. Um, I've already talked extensively about why, and I've written about it too. Uh, but basically, it's a very solid JRPG with very just very bad mechanical choices such as like you can't dash you can't run away from most battles so it's slow and aggravating uh much of the time and then to top it all off there is a great story with a bad translation i still love it but uh, yeah that's that's my choice i'm gonna throw out a game that you might not expect Mm -hmm. valkyrie profile really you I love Valkyrie Profile, but there's a reason that I haven't really gone back to it in the past 20 years. And that's it. Half the game are these really long and admittedly beautifully produced stories that are completely non-interactive of what's happening to the various party members who come on to your team. And I hate non-interactive stories (laughs) in RPGs. But that's PlayStation RPGs in a nutshell. <laughs> There's one story uh, that actually involves uh, Veronica Taylor, the voice of Pikachu, and a- or not Pikachu, the voice of Ash, uh, the original voice of Ash, uh-huh. uh, about this mermaid and the lapis lazuli. And it's so long. <laughs> and I would always dread when I, that story would come up because I'd be like, oh my God, this story is so long and so boring. Um, please let it end because I just want to get to the next dungeon or the next story. Some of the stories are really good. Right. And some of them aren't as good. Yeah. <laughs> and you can't like, can you at least make the text go faster? Uh, not really, no. Because yeah. that's not, that wasn't really a thing back then. Square. 
It's one of the reasons that I don't really play the older PlayStation Super Robot Wars games is because you can skip the battles before you can skip the cutscenes before the battle begins, but some of them are so slow. Uh, yeah, that's um, the PlayStation era of RPGs was very interesting, very innovative, but uh, my God, was it slow! As for actual design, um, I thought fall- oh, so. In hindsight, I liked Fallout Four a lot better than most. Mm-hmm. But as a lot of people pointed out, and I think I agree now, uh, the dialogue choices, cutting them down dramatically like that really hurt uh, the how dynamic the conversations yeah. are. Yeah. Um, I'm not nearly as big of a Fallout fan as you are, but even I know that like dialogue choices are, of course, a major part of the series. And I'm not sure if Ford cut them back because they took away the idea of you being the avatar versus some rando you see in the mirror in, early in the game. Because I, I just didn't like the fact that you would choose a dialogue option and then you'd see that your character speaking it out to the person like you were talking to. Like I, that, Something about that just didn't really gel with me. Uh, it gels fine with me, but I just want more dialogue options. Yeah, there's that. Yeah, I can understand that. Uh, and probably the biggest problem everybody had with Fallout 4, and I completely agree, actually, is that it forces you to choose a faction. Right, and, right. Like, you have to choose the Brotherhood of Steel, or you have to choose choose the Institute, or you have to choose the Underground Railroad. And I would have chosen the Underground Railroad anyway, because I believe in robot revolution. Let's go. Right. Yeah. Toot toot, all aboard. But at the same time... I can understand that there are plenty of people who are like, I don't like any of these people. Why can't I go it alone? <laughs> That's why Fallout New Vegas resonated with people because you could screw all, thri- all all of the people, right? Yeah, of course. That's pretty funny that uh, they didn't let you do that this time. Yeah. Uh, and then like they actually fixed it in the Far Harbor DLC where you had far more options. And you could have the uh, the endings interact in really interesting ways. Like you could kind of have half of one ending and half of another. So you were kind of cobbling together your own ending and you had a lot more agency over how the story unfolded, whereas Fallout mm-hmm. 4 was much more linear. Right. Yeah, you're right. So in my mind, that like was a design choice that or a story choice that really like made Fallout 4 considerably worse, um, in my opinion. Uh, I see a lot of people say the the adoption storyline in Final Fantasy VIII. I don't agree with that at all. I, I, yeah, it's a little out of left field. But does that ruin it any more than anything else in Final Fantasy VIII? Not really. I don't see why it would. I mean, Final Fantasy VIII did have kind of a cool twist with like Laguna being Squall's father. I still think that's pretty neat. Yeah, I think people didn't like it because it came so out of left field and because it had or it felt like it was being put in there to give Irvin something to do. <laughs> Gotta give the poor cowboy something to do. Come on, he's bored over here. And amnesia is such a hoary story trope, especially in a JRPG, that people are like, uh, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, that I can understand, but I still don't think it's that bad. I do think, okay, this is going to be spoilers for Final Fantasy X, so if you haven't finished Final Fantasy X and you maybe skip forward a couple minutes... I think the ending of Final Fantasy X ruins it. That was, um, what was it, like uh, a dream or something? Yeah, so the whole thing is, you know, Titus doesn't know why he's in Xanarkin. He got carried over. Right. Um, and he's following, he's tracing the path of his dad. And 
as time goes on, like the story like steadily uncovers things and the stakes actually steadily rise. And so <laughs> you discover a whole bunch of things. You discover that Yuna has to die. You have to discover like that there's this conspiracy going on uh, in Spira. You discover like what the kind of the horrible cost of taking out um, the giant space whale is, right? <laughs> yes. But I can't remember his name. But then they had to let and this is all fine. This is all enough as like a story, but they had to add one extra element, which was it's Titus is a dream and it doesn't even make any friggin' sense. Like, like is, I don't understand. Is he a dream within a real world? Like I don't understand how that works. I feel like they did it just because they wanted a scene where Titus is disappearing and they couldn't figure out how to make it work. So they went backward from the conclusion. <laughs> <laughs> how like whose dream is he so i don't understand he's a dream of the faith or something like that so he's got sure. this there's this little kid who like pops up periodically and you're like oh well, who's this mysterious little kid right and why is xanarkin like a complete ruin what's going on here and the answer is uh xanarkin was a dream or something and titus is a dream but actually not really because he also still exists yeah because yeah. he, at the end of Final Fantasy ten two, he just pops out of the waters like, I'm back, baby. <laughs> Hi, Yuna. And he goes and runs and hugs Yuna. And everybody's on the beach applauding. Oh, yay. Yay, like, oh, that what? sounds like it's so JRPG slash anime. I love it. Final Fantasy ten is so stupid. <laughs> Don't like it. I think that ruined it. So That that was pretty, that would be pretty stupid. I mean, I think I've said this before, but uh, if... God, when I tried to write something like that in grade two, I got in trouble because it was so bad. <laughs> Jesse Radonsky asks, and I've been to a Portland Timbers game with Jesse. So, Ooh, hi, Jesse. Cool. Uh, you support bad teams, but that's okay. Let's <laughs> read your letter. A little MLS heat on this podcast. Ooh. What's one thing you wish all RPGs would adopt? I wish all along RPGs would note the dialogue choices you made in your first playthrough so you don't accidentally choose it again in New Game Plus. Oh, that's actually pretty good. That's Yeah, that's actually a very good idea. I like that very much. Um, I think I would like for every long RPG to have a good story summary if you've been if you've kind of turned off the game for whatever reason. Uh, Dragon Quest XI is very good about that. And I think The Witcher 3 has something similar. I want to go back to Tactics Ogre. Had a really interesting system where... So you had multiple story paths that you could go down to and key inflection points. And after the game was finished, you could go back to specific inflection points and trace the story from there. That's cool. That's actually a really good idea. I like that. So it's visualized as a big, sprawling kind of web of, of choices. And you can go to a part of that web and be like, okay, I want to continue from here and see what happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a good idea. So there are these games like Witcher 3 where like you make very specific choices and I guess you could save your game before then just to see like what happens. But I would actually kind of like the ability to go back to those and see what happens. It's kind of like, you know, when you would read a choose your own adventure book and you'd hold your finger in the spot and like go ahead and see what would happen if you went down this path versus that path. I would always flip. I would always flip to see both choices. Like I wouldn't do it blindly. (laughs) No, me neither. I don't think anyone did. I like the ones that are like, you're dead. <laughs> <laughs> Not only do you die, you die in really horribly specific ways. Yes. It was really cool. Yeah, like uh, the book, You Are a Monster. <laughs> did you ever read that one? I don't think I did. I read a lot of them, but not that one. 
Yeah, they always end up like, they're the ones where like you die horribly. They're the ones where you're stuck as a monster permanently. They're the ones you, you, where you manage to get transformed back into a human. It, it's interesting how it dead ends. Yeah. I miss choosing our adventure. Kind of Twilight Zone-esque. Uh, also, Tactics Ogre had something that I, another feature that I really enjoyed, and that's the ability to rewind. Ah, yes. Um, it's funny, we're seeing rewind become an option on more retro game uh, collections, but n- not so much in RPGs, and it would be handy. I think that, uh, especially Tactics RPGs, but uh, also regular RPGs, uh, ones that are turn-based and have like a strategy component, are nothing if not a series of chess moves. And I think mm-hmm. that being able to rewind a couple turns and go like, okay, well, that wasn't really working. Maybe I should try this instead, like could potentially be a good addition to a lot of RPGs. Yeah, I agree. That would actually save a lot of aggravation. <laughs> uh, and an ability to skip, uh, the ability to skip cutscenes for heaven's sake. Yeah, um, it is unforgivable that we have to say this in 2020. Uh, we were just talking about the PlayStation era. Fine, everyone wanted to show off their their computer graphics. It was all really cool and new. Uh, we're over that. Just let us skip the scenes, please. Shenmue 3 just patched it in. <laughs> Congratulations, Shenmue 3. Welcome to 2020. Yeah, I think that it's the height of our arrogance to assume that everybody wants to see every last minute of the dialogue or the cutscenes that you've put in. It's a video game, for heaven's sake. Put the control back in the hands of the player. Yes, like, can you, even like movies, can you imagine if they didn't let you rewind, or sorry, if it didn't let you fast forward? If I were in charge of an RPG, it would have no non-interactive cutscenes. <laughs> everything would be <laughs> interactive, and I would do everything I could to make the story happen, uh, evolve e- organically through the actions that I am doing. I think that, even though I like the occasional uh, CG cutscene, uh, I think we are beyond them by now. You know, maybe have one as an intro when it was like the attract mode. But uh, yeah, I see. I, I think that interactive cutscenes are a lot more valuable than just static ones. Interactive cut, inga, static cutscenes that I can't interact with are only good for me getting on my phone and checking Reddit while I wait for it to end. They're, they're, that's exactly it. Like, again, it's not 1998 anymore. People have phones. People are going to check out real fast if you bore them. Yeah, like Death Stranding had so many of them, and it gets to a point where you're like going, oh my god, just, yeah, okay, fine, whatever. Japanese <laughs> games just love them. It's actually they a huge do. reason that I just can't get into Yakuza. Oh, really? Do they not have, can you not like skip those cutscenes? Or I think you can, but I mean, at least the last Yakuza I played, which I think was like Yakuza 4. Um, right. I mean, like they were fun. They were fun cutscenes. They were really well produced. And they often, are. They were extremely well produced. And often hilarious. Yes. But at the same time, I'm just like, oh my god, this is going on forever. I just want to play the game. Well, it is a soap opera to give it its credit. Oh no, I I get that, and that's what it's that's the energy that it's trying to go for. And I think there are a lot of people who are really into that. But uh-huh. I'm also the same kind of person who will be watching Better Call Saul while playing Dragon Quest Eleven. Yeah, I don't know how you people do that. <laughs> like people like you, I I don't understand. Like I can't even listen to music with lyrics if I'm writing. <laughs> I don't understand how people can just sit still and watch a show without doing anything else. I know that's like some real millennial energy right there, but (laughs) it's 2020. I got too many screens. I do get like a little bit restless if I watch television without something to do as well. But I'm mostly I got to concentrate on one thing at a time. 
Like I have a podcast going whenever I'm playing Dragon Quest Eleven. I, it's difficult for me to just put on put on my headphones and play that game. Not the least because the soundtrack sucks. Yeah, but it's like just I can't listen to a podcast. I can't listen to people nattering at me when I'm trying to read. What the? <laughs> That's such a mix up. <laughs> That's the thing is that I, I guess I can multitask really well. Because I that's can read the, while That's why you're the EIC talk. and I'm not. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> but it may be that I'm not actually taking in the story as much as I could be if I were paying fully attention. But sometimes, if I miss something, I can always go back. Okay, Brayden from Ontario says, I wanted to know how you discovered your first RPG. So we've talked about our first RPG. We haven't really talked about how we discovered it. Uh, yes. My first RPG I ever played was Super Mario RPG. I thought it was the coolest game on the SNES. I never played a game where you took turns attacking. I thought Nintendo had a hit on them and that everyone should make an RPG until years later I rented from my favorite video store, Jumbo, uh, Final Fantasy VII, for the PS1, thinking it was some action game. Then after the opening cutscene, when you have your first battle, that I yelled out, OMG, this game is Mario RPG. I mean, it's right there in the name. It says it's Super Mario RPG. <laughs> Yeah, they're not hiding it from you. I think the way that I discovered uh, RPG, I, I, did, I didn't really realize I was playing RPGs when I was playing them uh, because I'm pretty sure that I trace my first RPG back to maybe Final Fantasy Legend on the Game Boy. Right. And it's kind of a strange RPG. Yeah, and I wasn't even really thinking of it in terms of RPGs. It was just a game that I happened to be playing. I don't think I thought in terms of genres. Yeah, um, I think back then, like the 80s, early 90s, uh, genres weren't as well known as they are now. Um, because I know I wasn't thinking about RPGs when I first played my first RPG, which was Dragon Quest slash Warrior, which I got when my brother brought it home. Uh, he, some One of his friends let him borrow it, and uh, my brother bounced really fast, but I, I picked it up and I loved it. And uh, shout out to Jumbo Video and that nasty-ass free popcorn. It was nasty, but it was free. I just remember in the mid-90s, I had a vague fear of turn-based games because they seemed too complicated. I mean, there's four choices. Yeah. (laughs) 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 Uh, I mean, but then I think around the time that I was in high school and I got a Super Nintendo, like I specifically sought out a long game. Right, right. And uh, thinking about it, I think high school is when I started to kind of specifically seek out RPGs. Because even when I picked up Dragon Quest th- two and three, I still don't think I really understood I was playing RPGs. Uh, but then, like once I started playing Sukuna Mana, I realized, okay, this is what an RPG is. And then I graduated to Final Fantasy VI, and by then I definitely knew what an RPG was. I'm gonna if you don't if you'll forgive me for putting on my old person hat. I think that we grew up with a different gaming experience than, say, people like Katie, who grew up in the 90s, right? Um, Yes, definitely. Because, I mean, we grew up with the NES, and these were very primitive uh, Often experiences were often based heavily on arcades that were brought home. And, you know, you grow up on shoot-em-ups and puzzle games and platformers, and that's primarily what you know, a RPG feels like a very different experience and yes that was the thing was that back back then back in the day um consoles were kind of the you know 
for kids, for want of a better word, and PCs were kind of the more adult experience in that there was a much more, there was a much greater divide between the two. On PCs, you had hardcore strategy games, and you had flight sims, and you had role-playing games and stuff that you couldn't get on console, and on console, you had Sonic the Hedgehog. Yeah, uh, that's actually something I pointed out in, um, I wrote an article about, like, why Dragon Quest didn't take off the first time around in uh, North America, despite uh, Nintendo's efforts to try to make it a thing and that's one reason i pointed out i think it's because um it's like the nes was known to us for mario for mega man for those really fast-paced action games you know ninja gaiden and then like here comes dragon warrior who wants you to sit down and read and select things from a menu and of course it is still like even then it was kind of a slow archaic rpg uh by the time we got it japan was enjoying the the much faster, much better Dragon Quest 3. So, yeah, like, I could see why people were turned off at first. Like, what is this? This is, I, I don't, I didn't come here to read, you know? <laughs> as speaking as somebody who was playing PC primarily in the mid-90s, I always thought it was so weird when a platformer or, like, Sonic or something or a fighting game like Street Fighter got ported over to the PC because it just felt completely out of place. Yeah, like, Especially when Windows 95 became a thing and they were porting everything there because it became much easier to, to port things there. Uh, they really tried to bring over a lot of action games to the PC. And uh, I'll never forget reading a review by someone who was very angry about Mega Man X being on PC because it just was just too lowbrow for him. It was like, what is this anime smurf bullshit, you know? <laughs> he was so angry about this what we now know is one of the best action games ever made, which, like, he he just thought it was for plebes. Okay, and here's the last question. This is from Sammy J9, and they have a proposal of what they think is a good RPG dungeon. Like, here's here are the ingredients, all right? Are you ready? Yes, let's cook it. One, good combat encounters, although this is more often due to the game's battle system than anything else, but also placement and application of the combat. Two, unique and interesting atmosphere. Is it good to look at with different color palettes than other places I'm in in the game? Does it really feel like special and engaging place to explore? Three, good loot, both in locations of loot and rewards. I totally agree. Like yes. you have to feel yes. like when you're done with the dungeon that you have made an appreciable step forward and gotten good stuff. If there's I one agree. thing that annoys me about Dragon Quest XI is that it's way too conservative with how I'm upgrading my characters. Yeah, uh, I think it really expects you to kind of uh, to uh, forge a lot of your armor, which is fine. Like, I love doing it. But, yeah, it's kind of lacking for that epic loot that you find. The problem is, like, I just, I don't have any interest in fetch quests. I don't do Mm -hmm. them. I hate them with a burning passion. (laughs) Uh, I will give, I will take marks off any game that has them. I just think that they're terrible, terrible terrible piece of filler. <laughs> it's like, why don't you go to the damn store yourself, Granny? But uh, so much so much of the materials that you need to forge and upgrade stuff in Dragon Quest XI, you have to do side quests to get. I can't remember if that's the case or not. Like, some of them, but not like... I feel like I never have any materials. It's funny, because I never... I don't remember having a problem, like, having materials in my pockets when the time came. And of course, I've told you the merchant is there selling stuff. Not all of it, but... yeah. Uh, or you find it scattered throughout the fields, unless that's what you mean by fetch quests. Uh, but they said it needs to be have well-placed treasure, treasure that's too easy to just get just sitting in the open gets old fast. 
You can have some of that, but also have chests in some hard-to-reach places that have better stuff in them, making maybe with difficult optional puzzles to make it more rewarding. With the caveat that the rewards need to be good. There's nothing worse than finally figuring out a way to get a tricky chest and finding out the reward is crap. Oh, God. I agree. I hate that. I hate it when it's like some like fairly, uh, you know, maybe say like middle of the road expendable. And it's like, oh, go to hell. Oh, cool. Crafting stuff. Yay. Cool. Stuff I could have bought at the store. Thanks. Potions. Wow. <laughs> wow. We almost went my birthday. Four, things to do other than just fight enemies. This is more personal preference, but IMO, the best dungeons have unique gimmicks, puzzles, core concepts behind them that really set them apart. Make sure that it has as many ties to the story, characters, and themes of the game as possible. The more personal connections we have to a dungeon, the more we'll be attached to it. Example being something like Futaba's dungeon in Persona 5 being deeply tied to her character. Yeah, That's I true. totally yeah. agree. Um I think that ties into the dungeon having stakes. Yes. So and not like annoying stakes, like actual emotional stakes. So everybody likes to rag on Persona 4's dungeons, but I actually I actually really like them. Yeah, they're pretty boring to look at. They're basically just palette swaps and ultimately they're not that interesting in terms of layout, but I liked them because they felt like they had real stakes in terms of the story. I was learning about these characters by proceeding through them. That's true. Yes, it is like uh, tied to the characters like psyches, which I think was, of course, that's the whole point of the game. But yes, that was a a very nice touch. And somebody mentioned in the comment thread that another aspect of it is a sense of danger. And that's another reason that I think the Persona 4 dungeons actually work for me is because they're pretty tough. And you feel like you have a time limit. So it's actually a fairly stressful experience getting through them. But when you do finish them, they don't feel road or boring. You're like, like, yes, I did it. Yeah, uh, I think Persona Five has uh, the time limit as well. I think all Persona games do. And I think about it, but um, the thing I remember most about Persona Five dungeons, if you fail, which I've never done, I've never really failed, but like I've I've watched like YouTube videos of people who let the time run out, run out, and the consequences are pretty grim. Like the cops arrest you and take you away, and. Uh, you're uh, the I can't remember the name of the coffee guy who's like, you know, looking after you. He's like, oh, I believed in you. And it's just really depressing. Oh, geez. Yeah. Uh, heater hands. Oh, this is a short one. Am I the only one inclined to call shenanigans on cat claiming Hufflepuff? It's definitely <laughs> Nadia's house, which I think he's throwing or they are throwing shade at you, Nadia. But cat always struck me as a Ravenclaw, maybe even a Slytherin. Okay. So I have really like strong opinions on house alignments and I I don't take kindly to people dissing Hufflepuffs who are definitely the the best house. I agree. I think I choose Huff, I choose to take Hufflepuff as a compliment because I think it is a compliment. Yes, a Hufflepuff understands how to live their best lives. They appreciate they Good food and good company and good people. A Hufflepuff will always be very dependable. A Hufflepuff is low drama. But that does not mean they're stupid. Somebody like Cedric Diggory was awesome. That's right. He was a Hufflepuff. A Hufflepuff is the person who is willing to take the bullet and go down, you know, like... They, they go down fighting. You ever seen a badger? Yeah. Badgers get pissed off real easy. I was just watching The Avengers for some reason. Um, and there's a line by Captain America... When the chips are down, you wouldn't, you wouldn't crawl across a, a mine and let your buddy crawl over you. Uh, mm-hmm. you. You just wouldn't do that. And uh, a Tony Stark sneers, oh, I would just cut the wire. 
but which is a very Slytherin response. <laughs> That's a very Slytherin thing to say. A lot of a lot of people would say Captain America is a, a Gryffindor, which is the nerdiest comment I've ever made on this podcast. Yes, and that's that's really saying something. But (laughs) I see self-sacrifice and loyalty as a Hufflepuff trait, and I I would be proud to have that trait. Yeah, I think so. I think Hufflepuffs are really awesome. Yeah, so take that. Um, I'm fine (laughs) with being a, a Hufflepuff, and I like to think that I'm just all about living my best life and taking care of the people around me as as much as possible and being right next to the kitchens uh, in the common room. <laughs> I agree. I mean, okay, let's say you get let's say you get sorted into Hufflepuff or okay, let's say you get sorted into Slytherin. First of all, you got to hang out with the worst people, white supremacists, rich yeah. rich kids, like uber and obnoxious ambitious people. You got to go down to that horrific uh damp like everything's got mildew. It's under the yeah, lake. The, the common room, like there's a squid. Like, no thanks. Yeah, you get to wear like a cool color, but think about the people the you actually have to hang out with. Yeah, it's like not until like book six that they tried to give you like you know, Slytherins who weren't completely evil. I mean, but even then, like Professor Slughorn is terrible. Yeah, he's an asshole. And it's if you look at, I mean, the people I think of as Slytherins are all in Silicon Valley here. Yeah. <laughs> You are in Slytherin town. Yeah. The people who are always going after venture capital and are willing to screw anybody to get what they want. That's not a trait to be proud of. Anybody no, who agree. says I'm a Slytherin, either they're wrongheaded or immediately suspect in my book. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, I, I don't see anyone where, like, if you wear Slytherin as a, as a, a, a badge of honor, which I know some people who do, it's like, uh, why would you do that? But if you get sorted into Hufflepuff, you go down to these really wonderful, nice, cozy hobbit holes that are right next to the kitchens. Did I imagine they're next to the kitchens? <laughs> the house elves will sneak out food for you after hours. I mean... Because they like you. Everyone loves Hufflepuffs, too. That's the thing. Like, Yeah. Yeah, like Slytherins and Gryffindors are always taking shots at one another. Who hates a Hufflepuff? Nobody hates a Hufflepuff. Hufflepuff and Ravenclaw are just kind of like, hey, how's it going? Oh, I'm fine. How are you? And, I mean, if you look at the professors, nobody wants... Snape as uh, their mentor. No, no, Snape's awful. And Flitwick is kind of like spacey, and uh, I, I guess he's kind of interesting to talk to. But and then um, McGonagall's far too strict. Whereas um, she is the 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 uh, I forget who the the Hufflepuff uh, house head is. She's the herbology one. She's nice. She's she a great nice, mentor. Yeah. Come on. I agree. I'm I'm happy to be a Hufflepuff. All right, so that's my take on it. I'm a Hufflepuff. Sorry, loyal Badger, <laughs> hardworking Badger. badger. Okay, and the last thing is from FTL Mantis. Do you two know your Pax East plans yet? I got a k- ticket this year. It would be cool to catch any panels or things you had planned. So Nadia and I aren't going to Pax East this year, but we will have a presence Sad. there. Yes. Um, Eric. Matthew and Mike are all going to PAX East, and we're going to be doing some cool things. You should keep an eye on the site uh, for announcements. One of the things that I can kind of confirm is that we're going to be doing a Shark Tank style thing. (laughs) It's going to be great. People are going to bring their pitches for games to Eric and Rebecca Valentine from GGI.biz, plus some game developers, and they will, well, (laughs) basically say if they think your idea is good or not. 
That's going to be a lot of fun. I actually do wish I could see that because I feel like Rebecca's too nice to really be mean, but Eric is going to drag people. It's going to be fantastic. Uh, Eric is a very enthusiastic person. Reb is just a very nice person. Exactly, you want to talk about yeah. Hufflepuff. She is the Hufflepuff. Oh, she is, she is the Hufflepuff that I have ever, who has ever puffed. <laughs> she is. And on that note, Axel Blagat is a U.S. Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. We are out every single Monday. Tell you all of your friends. If you enjoyed the show, please review us. I am on Twitter at the underscore Kappa. Nadia is on Twitter at Nadia Oxford. And Mike is on Twitter right now under at Into Discourse. Uh, we love hearing from you. If you want to comment, leave a comment on the show notes. I have been loving the conversations that have been happening on the show notes of late. It's been really great. Uh, yeah, they've been really awesome. So keep up the the good work, and thank you for the really kind words that I've been receiving lately. They like actually really brighten my day, and they brighten Nadia's day too. So I agree. Subscribe to our newsletter; it comes out every single Wednesday. You can find subscription information on the site, and keep following US Gamer for all of the best news and reporting and features and reviews. We all work very hard. So. Okay, Nadia, we'll be back, as always, next week to talk more role-playing games. But until then, for Nadia, Mike, and myself, thanks for listening, and happy adventuring.